Let's open our Bibles then to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 17. I got in trouble one time at a Bible study for saying that uh, there's one thing in, in our Bibles that is not divinely inspired. And people went, oh, you know. But it's the chapter divisions, okay? The chapter divisions. Um, the numbers in the verses and the chapter divisions were added centuries later. And, and so they're not divinely inspired. And so sometimes I have you get your chapter division saw out. That's what I call it. And, and uh, this is one of those places where it's really inconvenient for a chapter division. Last week, we ended up with uh, verse 28 of chapter 16, where Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that raises an awful lot of questions unless you, you put it together with after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led him up to a high mountain by themselves. If you put, those, if you put this together, and so we conveniently use these chapter divisions to end and start Bible studies, but it's not always convenient in terms of losing the thought. Okay, so what we've just come through is um, Jesus teaching his disciples about discipleship, about learning. Uh, we know that a disciple is a learner, a student, a follower. And so Jesus' disciples are those that have laid their lives down to follow him. So after he tells them that if anybody wants to follow after him, that they must deny themselves, take up his cross, and follow him, then there comes this First of all, the, he reveals himself in the transfiguration on the mount, which is what we're going to read tonight. But I want you to keep this in mind that the teaching is all about surrender, and it's all about submission to the Lord, and it's all about denying self, taking up our cross daily and following him. Now, that gets left out a lot. Um, Jesus didn't leave that out, by the way, when somebody said, I'll follow you. Jesus never left that out. He would go so far as to say, are you sure you want to do this? You know, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't even have a place to lay my head. Are you sure? And he encouraged people to count the cost. Now he's telling his disciples about taking up a cross. And by the way, that wasn't a piece of jewelry. That wasn't, I mean, today it's a piece of jewelry. But back then, if somebody took up their cross, it meant they were on their way to death. It was death to self. Denying themselves, that's a way of dying to yourself. Taking up your cross, that's the ultimate way of dying to yourself and following Jesus. So now, he takes, he takes Peter, James, and John, and I like this because Peter, James, and John were kind of the inner circle guys. Jesus allowed them to see the raising of uh, Jairus' daughter. Um, he allows them to see his transfiguration here, and there's, and there's a reason. There's a reason for this. As we get on into the study tonight, you'll see the importance of having two or three witnesses to testify. Two or three witnesses are important. So he takes Peter, James, and John, the brother James, and he led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Verse 2 there says, There he was transfigured before them. 
Now, those of you that are planning on this Israel trip, planning to go with us in May, will will notice that every place something happened in the Bible, there's a church or a monument or a, you know, and unfortunately it happened about 300 or so years after the fact uh, when Constantine came along. Constantine's mother was the one that had these... <coughs> I don't know what it was. Maybe it was pepperoni on her pizza or something. But she had these feelings of where these things took place. And so wherever she named them, that's where they built a monument or a church. So there's churches. And it's amazingly convenient that they always wind up where the tour buses can get. You know, So you're not going to find uh, the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration. You're not going to find on Mount Hermon which is about 9,000 feet in elevation, which would be pretty hard to get to. But you're going to find a, a church built on Mount Tabor, which is about 1,800 feet, called the Mount of Transfiguration. But the scriptures tell us certain things identify where these things took place, and, and now it's just become for convenience sake and for relic sake and for monument sake. But there's a, something to keep in mind as you travel there. And I know that those that we travel with are not going to be uh, searching for that certain piece of sod, you know, where Jesus stood or whatever. I mean, it's neat to walk in the land where Jesus walked. Um, they say that, that Israel is the place where heaven and earth came together, where they meet. I mean, isn't it awesome to think that, that God would take on human flesh and come down and, and tabernacle among us? I mean, that to me... That is just mind-blowing, that God would tabernacle among us. But you'll see that when, when you get over there, that there's, there's monuments for everything, and there's, and there's always you know, something for sale. The most important thing, though, that I want you to catch here tonight is that there he was metamorphosized. He was metamorphosed is the, the Greek word. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. Have you ever been driving in, in your car on a on a snowy, a bright, snowy day, and you get to the point where you just got to pull over because your eyes just can't take it. And the reflection's coming off your hood and the, and the sun and the snow and everything's so bright. Imagine looking directly in to the sun. It says, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. There's this bleach white. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. What a fantastic sight to behold. Jesus unveiling, really. I mean, I guess the miracle to me is not that, that they would see Jesus in his glorified state. The miracle to me is that Jesus walked this earth as long as he did and people didn't recognize him. That's, that's, to me, that's the miracle. That he could veil himself somehow and and we wouldn't know who he was um, he was rather amazed just in the uh, last uh, oh I'm sorry that was a study that we did I was, I was thinking it was in Matthew but it was actually in John uh, chapter 14 16 we're not going to go there tonight don't worry but the, but Jesus was rather amazed when he said to Philip Philip don't you recognize me Philip said, show us the Father and we'll be happy. And Jesus said, well, 
Don't you recognize me, Philip? I've been with you all this time and you don't know who I am? That's the miracle to me, that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh and they didn't recognize him. Here, he reveals himself to these guys and alongside him is Moses and Elijah. How'd you like to be there? That'd be something. Talking with Jesus. Now, Matthew doesn't go into what they were talking about, but we don't have to speculate what they were talking about. If you turn, take a right-hand turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, I'll show you what they were talking about. Luke tells us what they were talking about. Luke chapter 9 And look at verse 29. He actually says, well, go to 28. Some people say that this is a, um, a contradiction or, or a discrepancy in the Scripture. Luke says, about eight days after Jesus said this. Um, we just read in Matthew that it was six days. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Luke says, about eight days. So Luke's not really concerned about how many days? He says it was about eight. Matthew tells us it was six. But he says he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he went up into a mountain to pray. So that gives us an indication that there was a purpose for them heading up there. They were heading up there alone, which is another indication that it wasn't Mount Tabor, because if it was, there was a city up on top of Mount Tabor. To me, it seems like they want to get to the quiet. So they uh, head up Mount Hermon, and it says they went up there to pray. He was, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure. Hmm. We have a King James tonight? They spoke about what? Yeah, his decease, his decease. The NIV says his departure. So you get a picture of what they're talking about. They're talking about his death. His departure, which was about to bring, he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Okay? So imagine this. Moses and Elijah come. And why Moses and Elijah? Well, I, I think they're representing both the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets now coming and talking to Jesus about his death that soon will take place at Jerusalem. Now, if you go back to our study in Matthew, back in chapter 16, which we finished up last week, look at verse 21. 16, 21. And this is very important. You, if, if you're one that is taking notes or highlights in your Bible, make note of these. Chapter 16 and verse 21 says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus knows this. He knows where he's heading. He knows where he's going. But now he takes Peter, James, and John up with him on this high mountain He's transfigured before them. Here's Moses and Elijah talking to him about his death. Now Peter says to Jesus, I like Peter, you guys. P 
Peter is one that's never at a loss for words. He's always got something to say, even if it doesn't make any sense. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter's thinking, this is pretty cool, and I don't want it to end. Let's stay here. Feast of Tabernacles isn't all that far away. Let's just put up our tabernacles now, and we'll hang here for a while. This is good. It's good that we're here. And while he was speaking, I like this, because while Peter is saying this, it's almost like the father just interrupts what Peter's doing. While he was speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Wait a minute. We have the law and the prophets represented here, and the Father, through this cloud, says, Listen to my son Jesus. Listen to my son Jesus. This is pretty intense. This is, a, this is a, a major revelation that I think a lot of us, as we go through the New Testament, we miss this or we take this lightly or we skip this. Because remember, Jesus already told his disciples that I haven't come to do away with the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. But his heavenly Father says he takes the focus off of Moses. He takes the focus off of Elijah He puts the focus on Jesus and he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now I would be blown away to be standing there on this mountaintop and all of a sudden see two guys, one of them that never died. He was just taken off the earth in a chariot of fire, Elijah. He never died, just taken off. And the other one, right after he died, the Lord took his body and hid it somewhere. You know, I mean, I would be blown away to be on this mountain and see these two guys, but Jesus, but Jesus is the focus. The Father says, I look at, hear him, hear him, listen to him. Now, in the book of Hebrews, you've heard me refer to this several times. You can just make a note of it. Hebrews chapter 1, first couple verses, I'm going to read that. But this is, what, this is how the book of Hebrews opens. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. So, think about that for a second. In times past, in various ways, many times, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken through his son. Now, here we are. Here we are, up on Mount Hermon. And the Lord speaks through this, in this cloud. He envelops him in this bright cloud and then says, this is my son. Listen to him. Now, one more thing. Because I, I, I guess um, I, want you, I don't want you to miss this. This is so important. This is key that we listen to Jesus. Okay? Second Peter chapter 1 I'm going to read verses 16 through 19 if you want to make a note of that. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. It says, this is Peter now, of course. He, he's writing his second epistle, and he says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the 
the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Of his majesty. Of his majesty. Who do we call his majesty or your majesty? Wouldn't that be a king? Didn't Jesus just tell these guys that some of you will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? And now he says, we didn't, we're not following cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you'll do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, when I listen to that, I'm going, Peter, Peter is telling him about what happened up on this mountaintop. And he's saying, we were up there. We saw his majesty. We heard the voice. We heard the proclamation. And he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. Now it says, we're back in Matthew 17, verse 6. It says, when his disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Or your Bible may say they saw Jesus only. I think that's a a pretty good vision. That's a pretty complete vision, if you ask me. If we can just get a glimpse of Jesus only. Just a picture of Jesus only. Now, remember, when they fell to the ground, Moses and Elijah were there. This voice is speaking to them out of the cloud. When Jesus touches them and says, hey, don't be afraid, get up. They get up and it says they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them. Now imagine getting these instructions from Jesus as you're coming down the mountain. Let's say you're Peter or James or John and you get these instructions. Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. How could you, I mean, I'm not very good at keeping secrets for one thing, you know, but I mean something like that, seeing something like that. And why would the Lord tell them, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, until I'm raised from the dead? Well, they they still didn't understand what that meant. The implication is, after the resurrection, I want you to tell them. After the resurrection, you will be my witnesses. He tells them that again in the opening of the book of Acts. You guys are going to be my witnesses. You're the one that's going to go tell the world. But till the resurrection, don't say anything. Well, the disciples asked him, why then did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now, they've heard Elijah must come first. We covered this a little bit um, last week when we talked about uh, Malachi's uh, proclamation at the end of uh, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, talk about Elijah must come first. 
Let's look at what Jesus says about that. They ask, and, and by the way, that's a good question. Because now, in chapter 16, when they were at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, you know, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, thou art the Christ, son of the living God. And so he knew that he was the Messiah. And, and Jesus said, Peter, flesh and blood didn't show you that. My father showed you that. That was a direct revelation from the throne room of God that I'm the Messiah. So they know that. They have this information now. Jesus just revealed himself in his glorified state up on the mountain. Peter, James, and John are coming down and they say, what about Elijah? Don't they say Elijah's supposed to come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then, in his narrative, verse 13 there, it says, then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Now, there's some things that, that these Jewish people recognize and understand that you and I wouldn't recognize and wouldn't understand because of our culture and because we, we just we don't have all the puzzle pieces. But if you would, I want you to turn for a second to Luke chapter 1. Gospel of Luke chapter 1. This is uh, the angel who is talking to Zechariah and explaining to him about the birth of his son, John the Baptist. And in verse 13, I'm just going to read a few verses here, but look at verse 13. It says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. He's the only guy I know that was born, born again. There's nobody else on the planet that's ever been born, born again, except John the Baptist. So if you ask somebody, hey, are you born again? They say, oh, I was born, born again. No, you weren't. That's not possible. Only John the Baptist. Okay? In his mother's womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he, here's a key for you, verse 17. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So, so the Lord is saying he already has come. They're saying, what about Elijah? Doesn't Elijah have to come first? And he says, he's already come. Now, the disciples picked up on that. It says here that they, they recognized, they understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. But it's interesting that just like there is two comings of the Messiah, when we got into our study in Revelation, you saw that uh, before the Lord comes back, before the second coming of the Lord, Elijah appears again. He's one of the two witnesses that come on the scene. And so there, there, is, there is really something 
to this that Malachi prophesies, and it's fulfilled in part in John the Baptist, but there's still a, a further fulfillment, as many prophecies that we've seen in the Old Testament. There's a near-term and a long-term fulfillment of these prophecies. Now, you will recognize that every time you have some kind of incredible experience with God, every time you have some great spiritual high, some really neat thing happen in the Lord, the enemy's waiting for you when you come down from the mountain. It never fails. It never fails. And I think this is one of those examples. As Jesus is coming down from the mountaintop, look at what they run into. Verse 14. When they came to the crowd... A man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Now, there's, there's something going on here, but I want you to know that before we even finish this account, look at the way this man approaches Jesus. It says, he approached Jesus and he knelt before him. Now, do you suppose that this man is going to receive what he's asking Jesus of? I mean, look at how he's coming to Jesus. Jesus has so much compassion on people that are hurting and just come to him and, and cry out to him. He never turns anybody away. And this is an awesome example of that. He tells him about his boy and and they said, we, we brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Now, that's kind of interesting because <clears throat> earlier Jesus had sent these disciples out and he had given them power over demons and, and power over sickness. And, and he told them, I want you to go out, and, and in particular to the, to the lost sheep of Israel, and minister to them and heal the sick and deliver those that are demon-possessed and so on. They said they, they couldn't. And Jesus responds by saying, verse 17, O unbelieving, circle that because that's critical to this passage, O unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How Verse 18 says that Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. Now before we go on in this account, I want to show you something. If you just turn one gospel Turn from Matthew's Gospel to Mark's Gospel, because it's a right-hand turn. Go to the right. Mark chapter 9. Mark has the same account, but he, he has a little bit more detail, and I want to show you um, something that Jesus asks this boy's father. Now let's back up a little bit. Let's back up to... Uh, Verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And look at verse 20. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into, convul into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, and he rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, 
How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or into the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us. Help us. Now, I want you to think about this because when Jesus comes down the mountain with Peter, James, and John, he runs into the the other disciples in the crowd. It says in verse 14, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. What's going on? What's going on here? There's something about a situation like this, and perhaps, I mean, it doesn't say so, but perhaps the disciples who were standing at the base of the mountain and the crowd that had already gathered had already seen some of the manifestations of, of this demon-possessed boy, and it's a, it's a terrible sight, okay? Let's just, let's just say it's a terrible sight to see, all right? At that point, you and I can relate to some of these things in our lives, maybe not demon possession, maybe you can, but I'm, what I'm saying is things happen in our lives that are terrible, and immediately what happens? We lose heart. We lose heart. Where's our faith at those times? And so Jesus has to come along and say, why, why, are, you, why are you doubting? Why, why don't you believe? Boss, I'm, you know, what's the matter? Are you still so unbelieving? How long am I going to be with you? You get the picture here? But, but this is very common among Christians where when we're under pressure, what's the last thing you remember to do? Pray. Turn to the Lord. Pray. Seek the Lord. It's, a, it's always the last thing. I'll tell you why it's always the last thing, because once you do that, there isn't anything else. You understand? It's, it's the last thing. It's like, well, how come when I lose something, it's always in the last place I look? Well, because you found it. You get what I'm saying? So it's like that's what prayer is all about. Why don't we do that first? Why don't we seek the Lord first? Now, let's, let's finish the story, and you'll understand what I mean by this. He says, from childhood, he answered, it's often thrown him into the fire or to the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, Jesus is going, if, if, believes. Now, he doesn't just mean believe, believe that you can. I mean, it's not, don't get this picture, because some have done this with faith. They think it's like the, the little train who thought he could. You know, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. He's not saying put faith in yourself or put, you know. He's saying if you believe in Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, if he's the object of your faith, if he's the object of your prayers, because after all, what is prayer? Prayer is simply getting my will to line up with God's will. It's not trying to bend God's will into line with mine. It's I need to pray so that I can get in line with God's will. Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible to him who believes. Now, look at the heart of this guy. You get a little glimpse into his heart. Look at verse 24. It says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe to make. And I think all of us, if we're not there right now, we could be there very soon. Lord, I believe. Of course I believe. Lord, we believe in you. Lord, we believe you can, but help me with my unbelief. What an awesome prayer, and look at how God honors it. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. 
The boy looked so much like a corpse that many of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer and, there's a footnote there, and fasting. Prayer is getting your will in line with God's will. Fasting is a way of denying yourself. What did he just tell these guys? You want to be my disciple? You need to deny yourself. Fasting is just one way of denying yourself. See, there's something going on, and as we go back to Matthew's Gospel, I want to point this out to you because it's critical that you see that prayer and fasting are both submission to God. Prayer is submission to God in that I want my will to line up with His. Isn't that what Jesus taught us in that model prayer that we have in Matthew 6? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, I want my life to line up with your, your will. I want things to go down here like they go in heaven. And it's interesting because... So, it says in Matthew's Gospel, it says, Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, verse 20, Because you have so little faith. Because you have so little faith. Well, what happened to their faith? Well, again, when you see something like they saw, when you experience something that they experienced, it's an attack on your faith. It's an attack on your... When, when we're going through the fire, I don't care what it is, when we're going through the fire in our life, it's an attack on our faith. It's a test of our faith. It can be sickness. It can be a car breaking down. It can be anything. It's a test of our faith. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with that? How are you going to go around the world? Watch the news. There's some incredible things going on. And the Lord says, it's because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, that's pretty small, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Now, what's Jesus saying by that? Is Jesus saying, okay, listen, you guys, I'm going to teach you guys how to move mountains. No, I don't think so. I really don't th- What You know, I mean, even if we could move mountains, what would we do with them? Where would we put them? You know, I don't think that's the point. I think the point that Jesus is trying to make is there's nothing that can stand in your way if your faith is in me and your faith is mine. Okay? Listen to what he says. You can move mountains. Move it. Tell them, go move from here to there. Nothing will be impossible for you. And then some manuscripts say, but, but this kind, does, you can interpret that, that these demons will not go out apart from prayer and fasting. Or you can interpret that this faith will not go out without this prayer and fasting. Either way, I believe it's correct. You know, Because faith in Christ is our strength. All right? I mean, I don't know. I wish I could. I wish there was some way that I could draw you a picture here tonight, or I could explain it to you, or I wish I could tell you I had it down. But I don't. I don't understand why, for example, I've prayed for some people and the Lord healed them just like that, and I've prayed for other people and they've died. I, I don't understand that. 
you know that's 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 going to puzzle me that's going to that's going to trouble me until i meet the lord and and face to face can go over this and say why lord what and why did you have me pray for him if you if you weren't going to heal him what why was i there what was the what, what was all that what was that about you know i don't understand there's a lot of things i don't understand about faith but as we go on we see a couple of neat things here he says nothing will be impossible for you but this kind does not go out except jesus is not going to be sidetracked to you guys look at this when they came together in galilee he said to him the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they'll kill him and on the third day he will be raised to life and the disciples were filled with grief now he just told them where's your faith he just told them that where's your faith whenever something tragic hits our ears hits our hearts hits our minds whenever we absorb something tragic that's all you hear jesus says i'm going to suffer and die in in, at the, in the hands of these men i'm going to hand it over to these men to suffer and die oh they're all bummed out they're grieving they never even heard him say he was going to rise up again they never even heard that part it's the second time that he's revealed this to them and they still actually uh the third time because he said it back in 1621 so he keeps talking about the resurrection but they're not getting it they're not getting it and now again he tells them that and it says and the disciples were filled with grief now that's a neat thing because they love jesus so much they don't want anything to happen to him they've confessed that he's the messiah that's a good thing here's what they don't understand there were many prophecies about the messiah that talked about his suffering and his dying david prophesied about him in psalm 22 the whole psalm is about the crucifixion the um the other prophecy in the actually the direct prophecy of jesus suffering and dying as messiah the suffering servant is isaiah 53 now don't tell me these guys didn't know these these scriptures they did they knew this stuff and yet they totally missed it the collectors of the two drachma tax came to peter and asked doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax actually back in exodus chapter 30 there was um, a, a tax that was set up to actually take care of the temple it, it was designed to to take care of the the temple and so now this is in the hands of the roman government actually they're collecting this tax and anybody between the ages of 20 and 50 years of age had to pay this this tax so they ask peter doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax yes he does he replied and when peter came into the house jesus was the first to speak what do you think simon he asked from whom do the kings on earth collectors now here's here's the question if if a king is going to collect taxes from somebody does he collect them from his own family no not generally the taxes the king and his family are exempt from those taxes the rulers are exempt from those taxes but it's to others so jesus asked him what about the kings of the earth they collect duty and taxes from their own sons or from others from others peter answered now 
Remember, this tax was for upkeep of the temple. Look at Jesus' answer. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. Did you catch that? You've got to remember that the temple was his father's house. <laughs> Jesus is saying, I'm not responsible to pay this tax. This house that you're upkeeping is my father's house. And so the sons are exempt. Verse 27, but so that we may not offend them. Go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Hey, Peter, you like to go fishing, right? Tell you what, do something you really love to do. Go down and fish, and guess what? First fish you catch, go down, open up his mouth, there'll be a four drop. <laughs> you talk about the Lord revealing his divinity here. How do you do that? How did he do that? There's only one way that he could do that, and that is if he is deity, if he's, who's he, who he's claiming to be, if he really is. <laughs> that is amazing to me. What? A fish with a coin in its mouth? Well, Peter liked to fish, and Jesus says, Go fishing, Peter. time, the disciples came to Jesus, and they asked, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, we have a great advantage here because we've read this, and we know that humility is the true path to greatness. Jesus has taught us this over and over and over in the kingdom teachings, you know, if you want to be great in the kingdom, be a servant of all. In fact, we went through that at camp last weekend with the kids. We went through uh, John chapter 13 through 17, Jesus showing the full extent of his love for his disciples, takes his outer garment off, puts a towel around his waist, and begins to walk, pours water into a basin, and washes his disciples' feet. Then after he was done with that, you know the story, but after he was done with that, he uh, takes off the towel, puts on his garment again, and he says, Now, you've seen what I've done. He says, I know you don't understand what I've done. But, but he said, Now that I've shown you these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so they come to him now and they say, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child and he had him stand among them. I love this. He calls this little child and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I hope that rings a bell for you. I hope that rings a bell of John chapter 3 when Jesus sits with Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus says, what is that? How can I be born again? I'm 30 years old. Can I enter into my mother's womb and be born again? Now, he's thinking in the physical realm. Jesus is talking in the spiritual realm. He says, wonder not, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He says, he's a bell when he says, you have to change, you have to become like little children or you'll never enter the kingdom. In fact, he told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom. You'll never understand the things of the kingdom of God unless your spirit is given birth. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus calls us to come to him, to learn of him, and he says, for I'm gentle, I'm humble, meek. 
Jesus is our example of this, but he puts a little child there and says, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Whenever I talk to somebody who has a desire to go into ministry, who has a desire to, to minister the gospel, I like to get him involved in the children's ministry. Here's why. Because if you can bring the gospel down to the level of a little child, you can bring it to anybody. And a little child, Jesus loves the little children, I'm telling you. And when you begin to bring the gospel to the little children, there's something about that. Jesus says, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. And so I watch the kids, how fired up they are at the end of worship on Sunday mornings. And I say, okay, children are excused for children's church. And I hear that little stampede you know, going down the stairs and stuff. That, that just blows me away because Jesus says, whoever welcomes them welcomes him. But there's a, a incredible warning that goes along with that, you know. The Lord, and by the way, the Lord is calling us to be childlike, not childish. You know, God doesn't call us to be immature. I mean, the whole. I mean, you go through the epistles, and it's all about growing up in Christ. It's all about putting on the armor of God. It's about being involved. It's about maturing. Um, but, but I want you to see there's an incredible warning here too as he begins in verse 6 to warn and say, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. You don't think the Lord loves these little children? That's pretty critical. And you'll see some of those millstones too, those huge millstones. In fact, I was watching the video that you guys made last time we were in Israel, and I think it was Chuck was talking in the back. You can hear Chuck talking, and we're looking at these huge millstones, and Richard's just kind of panning across these big millstones, and you can hear Chuck in the background going, how'd you like to have one of those around your neck? <laughs> like, whoa. Sobering thought. But, you know, Jesus won't tolerate that. Somebody causing one of the little ones to sin, one of the little ones to fall away. And, and I think about, you know, what some of our children are, are subject to in this world. You know, and they come in contact with, it's amazing to see the faith that the little ones have, you know, and they'll stand up to anybody and say, well, one of the first scriptures I taught my kids when they went off to school was, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You know, so, you know what you're dealing with when somebody comes up and says, ah, there is no God. All right, well, now at least we know what we're dealing with. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and him to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. Now, why must such things come? Have you ever asked that question? I mean, I've, I've chased that around and I've been asked that question. Lord, why do you allow evil? Why is there even a devil? Why is there sin? Why is there... Well, we read that parable of, of the tares, you know, and, and how the enemy is the one that sows the weeds. He sows the tares. The master went out and sowed good seed, but the enemy sowed tares. And so the servants come and say, should we pull them up? Should we yank these weeds? Should we said, no, you have to let them grow side by side because if you start pulling on those weeds, you're going to pull out some of the plants as well. 
Let them grow up side by side, and at the harvest, they'll be pulled, and then the weed will be gathered into my barn, and the weeds will be burned in the fire. And I, you know, I look at this, and I say, Woe to those, to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. You look at that and you go, that's gross. Jesus, how can you talk like that? Well, you know what? He's trying to offend here. This is a very nasty portion of Scripture. Imagine going out into your shop and just whacking your hand off or plucking your eye out. That's pretty graphic stuff, and that's why Jesus is doing that. Why? Because he wants us to physically do those things? No, because he wants to show us how important it is to understand that the flesh is temporary, but your your spirit is going to live on into eternity. And what are you preparing for? Why do we want so desperately to gratify the sinful desires of our flesh when that's not going to remain? But there is an eternal part of us. In other words, I love the way Missler put it. He says, I look out at this group of people tonight, and he says, I can't see any, any of you. He says, not because it's bad lighting, but because what I, what I see is not the real you. You see, I, I see the, the, the hardware. And he starts comparing it to a computer. I don't, I don't see the software. And he picked up one of these little uh, diskettes. These little, I could use like, a, like this mini disc here. He picked up this little diskette. And he said, you know, one of these little computer diskettes weighs about you know, one-tenth of an ounce if I put it on a postal scale. But if I take and I put a million bytes of information on this disk, and I put it on the postal scale. How much does it weigh? About a tenth of an ounce. It's, it's, it weighs the same thing. You see, the, the software doesn't weigh, weigh, weigh anything. There's no mass to it. And that's the way our, our souls are, our spirits. They, you know, call it soul, call it spirit. I make a division between the two, and I believe that the soul is your mind, your will, your emotions. But those things have no, no mass. No. The real you... Your spirit that's going to live on into eternity has no mass. And just like we can get an upgrade, you can buy a, a nice new laptop like we just did and everything runs faster and, and four color and all that kind of stuff. We're all headed for an upgrade. All right, We're not going to take these hard drives to heaven. They'd never make it. The flesh can't inherit the kingdom of God. But when I look at this and I see how important it is to understand that my spirit is, is eternal, then I can look at these things, and, and what's he saying here? He's saying that, that the flesh is not what's going to go into eternity. The flesh can't inherit the kingdom. But you, that doesn't mean that you're not eternal beings. All of us are eternal beings. It's just where are we going to spend our eternity? You understand? Uh, Chuck Smith describes it like this. He says, how about you guys that go trapping? You hunters, trappers. He says, if you, if you catch a muskrat and you catch them by the foot or whatever, any kind of animal you catch, but he'll chew his foot off to get away. And he'll live the rest of his life with three paws. Why? Because his life is that much more important. And Jesus is, this is so graphic, it's so gross, it's so, 
but it's meant to be. And I've had people say, oh, you can't take the Bible literal. I mean, look at that. You think Jesus wants you to pluck your eye out or cut your hand up? Listen, read the whole thing. Read the whole thing. Read it all the way to the end. It is better for you to enter life with one eye or one hand than to have two eyes or two hands and be thrown into the fire of hell. Can you take that literally? You better. You see what I mean? And so don't let anybody tell you that you can't take the scriptures literally because it's true. Now, does Jesus want us to go out into the shop, cut a hand off? No. No, what he's saying is consider eternity. And again, he brings it back. See, verse 10 there, it says, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, when I read that, I go, Wow, the angels, yeah. Did you know that we got angels watching over us? This isn't just for the little ones. I mean, you can read through the Old Testament. There's several verses that speak of that. I think of Psalm 34, 7, um, Psalm 91, 11. There's Psalms that's, that speak about the angels. And then we talked, I think, was it last week or the week before, we talked about uh, Hebrews 1.14 where it talks about how angelic beings are, are servants of those that are destined for salvation. Think about that. Guardian angels. I always thought that was just a myth. Yeah. How many times, how many times have we had close calls? I'm sure I'm going to get it from my guardian angel when I get home to heaven. Bandages on his head and all bruised up. And man, what were you thinking? You know. But uh, but the Lord says, you know, hey, don't don't look down on, on one of these little ones. And then um, there's a, in some manuscripts, verse eleven says that the Son of Man came to save that which was lost, and kind of goes into this section here about what Jesus says in verse twelve. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hill and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he's happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. That's pretty cool. Not one of his little ones. He watches out. He watches out. Now, consider this. This next portion of Scripture here is concerning forgiveness. We touched on this a little bit last week, but it says if your brother sins against you. This is a very, you know, you might do well to put a a bookmark here or something in your Bible because you'll use this portion of Scripture often. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Do you know how many times I have to take people to this portion of Scripture because they'll come to me and say, Pastor, did you know that so-and-so was doing such and such? And I'll say, well, have you talked to him? Well, no. I go, well, what does the Bible say? It says that if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. What does that mean? That means don't hate, you know, get on the prayer chain, <laughs> don't get on the grapevine, 
Don't start hooking up with all these. Go to him and explain it. Because what? Because if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. And you'll be amazed how many times if you just go to somebody and say, you know what, I was hurt by that. I was really offended by that. But they'll go, oh, wow, you know, I never intended for you to do that. I never intended for that. But here's what the enemy wants you to do. He wants you to chew on it. He wants you to hang on to it. He wants you to go to bed angry. He wants you to you know, talk to your friend. Do you know what so-and-so said about me? Do you know that, well, I never. Oh, you must have. You know, it just it goes back and forth. It's like, that's what the enemy wants. He wants to stoke it up. The Lord says you can deal with it by going to that person and say, you know what, I was offended. And, and how many times you'll win that brother or sister over by just going and saying something. And you'll find out 99% of the time, it's like, wow, I never intended. That's not what I meant. I was, that was, that's not what I meant at all. But if he'll not listen, here's step two. Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, there's the two or three witnesses thing. It's important, you know. But first, go one-on-one. Secondly, take somebody with you. Somebody that, a mutual friend maybe or whatever, or some another brother or sister in Christ. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Okay, that's when you come and bring it if there's something that needs to be dealt with. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. A heathen, your Bible may say. Now, what does that mean? Well, turn back a couple chapters to Matthew chapter 11, and let's see what how Jesus taught pagans and tax collectors. 11, chapter 11 and verse 19. We'll have to do this quickly. He says in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 11, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a wine, and a, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Oh, you mean Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners? So if you go down this whole line of stuff and it still doesn't work out and they don't what does it mean? You should stone them? No, it doesn't say that at all. It says treat him as a tax collector or a sinner. You know, there are times when there has to be correction. There's times when people have to be disciplined, and there is such a thing as church discipline. Boy, if there isn't, we're in serious trouble. But that doesn't mean that you don't give them opportunity to repent. Jesus gave sinners and tax collectors opportunity to repent. In fact, the guy who was writing this is a tax collector, lest you forgot. Matthew, Levi, follow me, Jesus said. (laughs) And he left the tax table. That's pretty cool. Now, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We talked about this a little bit last week. Not so much binding and loosing demons as the doctrines like to get all cranked out of proportion here. Um, basically, what this means is that not that he's giving the uh, disciples the power to determine guilt or innocence, but that we do announce guilt or innocence. How do we do that? How do Christians announce guilt or innocence? Well, I'll tell you. We're bound or loosed by God's word. By God's word. You see, this is what I meant by the Jewish people that were listening to this would understand this completely because 
to bind something would, or if something was bound, it meant that it was unlawful. And if something was loosed, it meant that it was lawful. So for Jesus to talk to these guys, they would understand that, binding and loosing, what that meant. We're, we're bound or loosed by God's word. He's telling his disciples here, which, by the way, when we get into the book of Acts, it makes perfect sense because it says they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. What was the apostles' teaching? God's word. So we're given God's word, and so what we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Why? Because God's word isn't going to pass away when we get to heaven. Heaven and earth are going to pass away, but God's word isn't going to pass away. Now watch how this unfolds. He says, I tell you the truth, and by the way, this is still in the context of forgiveness here, because he's got a parable coming up here that will make sense of all this. But he says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Now, what's he saying? Agree in prayer. Now, most of our prayer is done in our prayer closet. Most of our prayer is done in private. But we do get together. We get together here on Wednesday evenings and we pray. And when we agree in prayer, when we're sitting around here agreeing in prayer, what does the Lord say? He says, we're two or three gather. So that means you don't have to have 3,000 for a prayer meeting. We're two or three gather. And by the way, where there's two, there's three. Because Jesus said he'd be there. Where there's three, there's four. You understand what I'm saying? He says, I'll be there. And where you agree on asking these things, it'll be done for you. Asking together in his name, that is in his will. And then Peter came to Jesus and asked, and here's why, here's how I can say that this binding and loosing and all these things are concerning forgiveness. Because then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Anybody ever had that question? How many times do I got to forgive this guy? Up to seven times? <laughs> I love Gail's commentary on this. Gail says, Peter, keep that up. You're going to be pope yet. You know? No, not seven times, Peter. Look at Jesus' answer. He says, I tell you the truth, not seven times, but 70 times. 70 times seven. I can just see Peter trying to do the math. 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents, just think of it as a million dollars, was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Think about that as a few bucks. And he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. 
I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers from your heart. Now think about that. We can think about what we've been forgiven. Let me take the we out of that because I don't have a mouse in my pocket. I could think about all that God has forgiven me of. And all I have is grace. All I have is mercy to give because of all the things that God has forgiven me for. And I think, how can we hold somebody's debt over their head? How can we do it? I've been forgiven a million bucks and you owe me a buck or two and I'm going to choke you for it. Jesus says, be careful. Jesus is teaching here on the importance of forgiving the debts of others because of all he's forgiven us. That's where we're going to leave it tonight. You want some reinforcement on that? Go back to Matthew chapter 6 sometime this week and read that model prayer that Jesus gave and how he expounds on one portion of that prayer. Chapter 6, verse 14, he says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Does that mean that it's by works? No. But it does mean this. That guy that was handed over to the tormentors, he was handed over to the tormentors because he refused to forgive another person's debt. I'm going to give you one example, then we're going to close in prayer. I had a lady come to me who had, for 30 years, carried, she carried the wicked, wicked deed of another somebody had done to her. And she was 12 years old when this person had attacked her physically and, and, uh, and abused her. And for 30 years she carried that. And when she finally opened up about it and, and said what had happened, she'd never told anybody in 30 years. Her husband thought she was crazy because she would just cry at the drop of a hat and never knew what was wrong. She came for counseling, and I had an opportunity to tell her that the key to this was forgiveness. And she said, I'll never be able to forgive this man, ever. And I said, well, that may be true, but you can ask the Lord to forgive him because he can't. And all you need to do is ask him. And so she did. She prayed with me, and she asked the Lord to forgive him. It was about two weeks later, she ran into the guy. I never dreamed that this would ever happen, but she walked up to him, and she said, you know, she said, when I was little, you hurt me. And she said, I just want you to know that I forgive you, and, and I know that the Lord will forgive you if you ask him. And what she did was, she, by forgiving this man, she was set free from the tormentors. She's a different person. She walks different. She talks different. She has relationships with people different. She was set free, but for 30 years that bound her because she wouldn't forgive. And, and I'll tell you what, that was something for me to see in another person's life. And by the way, that guy, when she said that, he ran away. He jumped in his car in tears and ran away. She hasn't seen him since, but but now he's got to deal with it. And as soon as he 
wants to ask the Lord for forgiveness, he'll be free. But the tormentors in this, in this story being handed over to the tormentors, you don't realize that if you don't forgive, you're tormented. You're the one tormented. And so the Lord is teaching us to forgive each other as he's forgiven us. And what has he held? What has he held of us? When we go to him and say, Lord, please forgive me, it says he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. There's a good reason why he didn't say north to south. Because if you throw something north, eventually it goes south. <laughs> you understand? He said east to west. If you go, go, go east, it's always going east. It's never going to go west. As far as the east is from the west. And he remembers them no more. That's what he wants us to do. Let's pray. Father, so much in what you've shown us tonight. And I just really thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that, that your word is not one tittle, not the dotting of an I or crossing of a T is going to pass away, even though heaven and earth do. And so I pray, Father, that uh, you'd sow your seed of your word deep in our heart. And by your Holy Spirit, Lord, help us to understand just a couple of things that we picked up here tonight that we can apply to our lives as we leave this place. And Lord, we thank you for uh, these times of study. We thank you for how intimate you get with us and how each one of us hear what we need to hear because you're doing a work in each one of us individually. I thank you for that, Father. Please be glorified in our lives. We lift up our families to you, our neighbors, our workplaces, our schools, and, and ask God that you'd use us in some, some way to just uh, sow a seed of kindness and forgiveness and, and your love and above all else, your, your gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Bird.